Well, as you probably noticed, we're going to talk about prayer this morning. This is a, a teaching that I've had on my heart for a while. I was looking for an opportunity, a window to, to, to talk about it with you guys, and this weekend seemed like the right we- weekend. The concept of prayer is one that I think is probably one of the most universal realities within humans. Uh, you know, humans pray. They just do, whether you're a Christian or a pagan or whether you're a pluralist or a monotheist or a deist or whether you're a Trinitarian, whatever, people pray. It's actually funny as a, as a pastor when I interface with somebody, I meet somebody um, and they, they find out who I am, it instantly gets awkward um, because they instantly feel the need to apologize to me about things um, for some reason. Yeah, well, we haven't been to church in a while, you know, yeah, well, you know. Um, but no matter who I meet, they always love to let me know that they pray. It's so interesting. I don't really believe in Christianity. I don't really, I don't know about the Bible, but I pray. Isn't that interesting? Every human knows to pray. I saw a statistic the other day that I thought it was interesting. 17% of atheists say they pray. That's why I don't believe in atheists. All right. 30% of atheists, no, it was 30% of atheists say they pray sometimes. 17% say they pray often. Who do they pray to? I don't know. Evolution, maybe? The evolutionary process? I'm not sure. Everyone knows that there is someone out there to pray to. You guys ever watched the show Alone? You ever seen that show where uh, they, they put people out in the woods and they have to try to live and survive alone for like 70, 80, 90 days? And uh, these guys get so spiritual while they're out there. It's funny, you know, they'll kill a squirrel and they're like, oh, thank you, universe. Or, or they thank the squirrel. Thank you, squirrel. Thank you, Mother Earth. You know, it's like it's so within us to offer up praise and thanks for whatever we're doing. Carl Barth, he called this the incurable God sickness. It is within you, it is stitched within your deepest part of your DNA to know to pray. Everybody does it. Every religion has a different approach to prayer. Every religion has a different philosophy of prayer. Whether it's prayer flags or whether it's pulling out a carpet multiple times a day and praying in a particular direction or whether it's going to Israel and putting a prayer on a piece of paper and sticking it into the wall, right, at the, wall, at the wailing wall. Uh, well, whatever it is, every religion, every person has something to say about prayer. But here's the question. The question is, what does Christian prayer look like? How ought Christians to pray? What should be different about Christian prayer? prayer? What makes Christian prayer unique? This is a question that was on the mind of the disciples as well. See, Jesus really didn't do anything in the box. Have you noticed that? In case you forgot, Jesus was murdered not only by the religious uh, Judaists, but he was also murdered by the pluralistic Roman Gentiles. Jesus was so out of the box, so strange, so weird, that he ultimately was murdered by just about everybody. He had some fans, but he had way more enemies. And so Jesus, whatever he did, it was almost always different. And the disciples have picked up on that. They're starting to notice, man, Jesus does things differently. He does things differently. So they come to him. Look at verse 1 of our text. This is the setting of our text. They come to him and they say, now, by the way, did you guys get the handout? There, there's a handout over here if you guys want it. There's, there's notes and fill in the blank in there. Um, verse 1, this says, now Jesus was praying in a certain place. 
like he did so often. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. So the disciples come to Jesus asking this question. How do we pray? Now, why are they asking this question? They're they're asking this question, for one, because Jesus' life was permeated with prayer. He prayed all the time. We know just from Scripture that Jesus prayed at his baptism. He withdrew to pray constantly. He prayed the night before choosing the 12. He prayed, he was going up the Mount of Transfiguration to pray. We see his prayer in John 17. He prays before the Lord's Supper. He prays for Peter's faith. He prays in Gethsemane, and he prayed on the cross. Jesus' life was a life of prayer. He prayed like breathing, constantly in communion with his Father. He prayed constantly. And the disciples have observed this, and it's by no accident that Luke reminds us in verse 1 that it was when Jesus was praying that the disciples took this opportunity to ask him about prayer. He's modeling for them. That's what discipleship is, right? Discipleship is follow me and do as I do. So Jesus is praying, now they're asking him about prayer. The other reason they're asking him about prayer is because Jesus had said a lot up until this point about prayer. He had some thoughts, some high standards about prayer. You remember some of them? He said, don't pray like the Pharisees who walk around in the temple court out in public where everyone's watching on their long robes and their very eloquent prayers He speaks in another place about those who offer up prayers but then devour widows' houses, sort of taking payment for some kind of a prayer. He says, don't pray like these guys. Then he also says, don't pray like the Gentiles. How do the Gentiles pray? They pray repetitiously, repeating over and over and over again, hoping that somehow maybe by their repetition they're going to somehow force the gods to to do what they want him to do. He says, don't pray like that. He says, go into your closet and pray. So Jesus has said a lot of things up until this point here that would make the disciples kind of wonder, well, then how should we pray? What does Christian prayer look like? What what should we be considering? What's the pattern that we should be basing prayers off? So they're asking Jesus this. The other reason they're asking this is because John the Baptist, no, that's not his last name, okay, John the Baptizer, John the Baptizer was actually the rabbi for many of these guys prior to them going to follow Jesus. And John had given them specific instruction about prayer, which was the common custom in the day for rabbis to give instruction to disciples and give them maybe a particular prayer that they could memorize and that they could learn. John the Apostle, or pardon me, John the Baptist had done this. So the disciples are going, when is Jesus going to give us instruction on prayer? So they come to him. And they ask him for that instruction. It's in this place that we get one of the most famous pieces of scripture, often referred to as what? The Lord's Prayer. Let me say a few things about the prayer before we dissect it. First of all, it actually shouldn't be called the Lord's Prayer. Because it's actually not the Lord's Prayer. What is the Lord's Prayer? The Lord's Prayer is found in John chapter 17, and that's the prayer of the Lord recorded for us that Jesus prayed before going to the cross. This is not the Lord's Prayer. What is this? This is the disciples' prayer. This is the prayer that Jesus taught the disciples to say. This isn't necessarily the prayer that Jesus would have prayed. Well, how do we know that? Well, Jesus wouldn't say, forgive me my sin, because he was sinless. This is a prayer specifically tailored for the disciples, Consequentially, for you and I. So this is not the Lord's prayer. I also want you to know 
that they did not ask him for a prayer. What did they ask him? They asked him to learn how to pray. So we need not get too meticulous about saying, well, we have to repeat this every day where it's not the prayer that Jesus taught. It's not teach us a prayer as much as it is teach us how to pray. What we're looking at here is a pattern. We're looking at a structure that we can deploy and employ in our own personal prayer life or our own corporate prayer life. That's not to say there's no value in repeating it or rehearsing it together. We, we certainly can and often do in church, but this is a pattern for prayer. This is not, by the way, the Lord's prayer that you're familiar with. Did you notice that when we were reading it? Did you notice there were some things missing? Any of you guys that grew up in church are going, oh, where's that line? Okay, thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen. Where is that? Uh, when it says, uh, there's, there's some major differences. Well, there's two versions of this. One is found in the book of Matthew and the other one is found here in Luke. And of course, scholars debate, because that's what they do, as to whether this is the same prayer or whether this is two different instances where Jesus is offering up different instruction. I don't really know and it doesn't really matter. The same content, or the content is the same, whether it's Matthew's version or Luke's version. And, and really, the, the pattern is what we're going after. The pattern is what we're looking for. Now, before we dive into this, I just want to acknowledge that you are at a deficit this morning in understanding the complexity and the beauty of this prayer because it's so familiar to you. Okay, it's so familiar. It's probably the single most famous piece of Bible in the world next to maybe John 3.16. Everybody knows this prayer. And so for that reason, your temptation when you read it is to go, got it, move on. And what I want to do this morning is I want to slow down and I want to take it line by line, word by word, and I want to really just ask, what is this prayer and why did Jesus teach them to pray that way? Tim Keller says, the Lord's Prayer may be the single set of words most or more often than, spoke more often than any other word. Yet, it is an untapped resource, partially because it is so very familiar. So our big idea this morning, our summary, is that Jesus is going to unlock the key and the shape of powerful prayer. The key and the shape to powerful prayer. And I believe that if we understand the balance of this prayer and the movement of this prayer, that if we apply that same balance to our life and we pray this type of prayer regularly, we will become like that. We will be transformed by it. That's my thesis that we're going to run after. Let me give you a quick outline and then we'll dive right in. We're going to see two sections here in the text. Let me just kind of give you a little bit of structure. Two sections. You can fill this in in your handout. First, we're going to see the kind of prayers we should pray. The kind of prayers we should pray. And that's verse 1 through 4. And then if you want to write it in, we're going to see the kind of person we pray to. The kind of person we pray to. And that's verse 5 through 13. So the kind of prayers we should pray and the kind of person we pray to. Let's start with the kind of prayers we should pray. Now you're going to notice as we dissect this prayer that there are six things at least the way I'm breaking it up, there are six things, six movements, six sections that we need to stop and consider. Six things that need to be recognized when we pray or consider recognized when we pray. The first is in verse two. Look at the beginning of the prayer. He said to them, when you pray, say what? Father, 
Jesus chooses this prayer for them to pray, and he very strategically starts it with one word, Father. Now, Jesus could have used the Greek word for Father, which would have been pater. That was a very commonly used word in the Greco-Roman world that Jesus is teaching in, but he doesn't choose that word. He chooses the Hebrew, or the Aramaic word, Abba. Abba, which is more endearing. It has a very um, close sort of uh, relational intimacy to that word. The word Abba is similar to our word today, Dada, right? One of the first words usually out of a kid's mouth is either Mama or Dada. It's just an easy word for them to say. The same is true of this Aramaic word, Abba. It's the kind of, uh, of name that when you heard your grown child say, it would remind you of the first time they said it when they were one year old or two year old. You ever notice how strange it is when your kids call you by your first name? It's just, it's just weird. You don't like it. You're like, stop that. Call me dad. Call me dad, right? Why? Because there's this very endearing relationship between Abba and his kids, right? There's this paternal fatherhood. Jesus chooses this address. Now, we just read right over that because we're New Testament evangelical Christians, right, that have lived in Christian Christendom, and we're just like, yeah, Father, big deal. That's how we pray. It's a really big deal that Jesus chooses this word, Father. The word Father was not the typical address used to pray to Yahweh God in the Old Testament. In fact, the word Father is only used uh, in, refer in reference to God 15 times in the Old Testament. And it is always referring to the progeny of Israel as a nation, never to an individual. We never see David call God Father. We never see Moses address God as Father, at least that I'm aware of. You might know of a place. Abraham, the friend of God, doesn't address God as Father. Jesus comes in with this new level of intimacy and connectivity to the paternal relationship of his father. And he's now giving and bestowing the right for the disciples to address God, Yahweh, in this same way. It's incredible. By the way, maybe you need to know this. Jesus is not God the Son because he became man. He did not start to be God the Son because he was brought into this created universe. He has always been God the Son. He is eternal, co-equal, co-eternal with God the Father. He's not son because he was begotten. He's not son because he was created. He's son because that's who he is within the inter-Trinitarian Godhead. Sam, why does that matter? Because when Jesus invites us into this fatherhood relationship, it's not because we're a created being. It's because we are united in Christ. Follow me on this. There is a sense in which every human being is a child of God. But that is a different sense in which you now have the father who you've been adopted by in Christ. Walk out this building, talk to someone that does not believe in Jesus. Are they a child of God? In one sense, yes. Are they a child of God because they've been united to the son of God? No. Only saving faith brings us into that relationship. You see that? What makes this fatherhood now available to the disciples? The answer is because Jesus has become their brother, they now have received his father. Paul unpacks this in Galatians 4, 6. He says, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying what? Abba, 
Father. So it is the Spirit of the Son, that is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Son that has allowed us, the union we now have with Christ has given us this relationship with the Father. Here's another one. Romans chapter 8, verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself hears or bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So here, 20, 30 years later, the Apostle Paul picks up this same idea, and he says, the reason that you have a Father in heaven like this is because you have been united with Christ the Son through saving faith. It's a beautiful reality. So number one, if you want to fill it in, the first thing we see in this prayer is the intimacy of his fatherhood. The intimacy of his fatherhood. And what does this teach us about the way we should pray? There's a very important lesson here that I don't want you to forget. If you walk out of here and remember one thing, make sure this is one of them. Before you pray, the first thing you need to do is believe the gospel. Before you ask God for something, before you praise God for something, before you tell God something, before you share God with something, stop and realize that you are perfectly loved, adopted and received by the perfect love of God through union with Christ. Isn't that cool? You see, we need to do that because sometimes we jump into prayer and prayer is no longer helpful. It's actually legalistic. We just jump right into confession. We just jump right into asking God for things. And rather than stopping and first grounding our feet in the reality that we are perfectly loved by perfect love himself through a union with Christ that cannot be severed. That's where prayer starts. That's the place that prayer needs to begin. So Jesus is not flippantly throwing this out. He's saying, you must start your prayer this way. John Calvin said, by the great sweetness of this name, Father, he frees us from all distrust. There's so much trust in that name. You know, there, there is something about the relationship with your father, even in a fallen world, even in a fallen sense, right? When I go to pick up my kids from class or whatever it is, and I hear their voice say, Dad, my heart is immediately drawn to them. There is a connection there that is metaphysical. There is a connection there that is deeper than science can explain. There is a paternal, protective thing in me that would die for those kids. <laughs> I was in Costco yesterday carrying these giant tubs, you know, out the door, and, you know, they have to check your receipt. And, and my friend Austin and his wife were in front of me, but they, they didn't know I was behind them. And I was pretty sure it was them. I was like maybe 70% sure, you know, but you don't know for sure. And I just have this compulsion in the store to mess with people that I know when I see them. And, and, and Austin's pushing his kid in the cart, his kid's in the cart. And he turns to, to do something over here. And I walk up and I was just about to like start walking away with the cart because I know him really well and it'd be really funny, you know. And, and then it, 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 like terror went through my head as I started to get the girl like, what if it's not him? local pastor arrested for walking away with child in cart. I was so glad it was him, and it was funny, and it was, I'm never going to do that again, though, because that was <laughs> terrifying. And he was like, dude, I literally would have, like, I would have gone after you. I'm like, I bet you would have. I mean, his wife would have gone mama bear on me. There is a relationship there. We need to see that. So the first thing, the intimacy of his fatherhood. Number two on your outline, we need to see also the sanctity of his name. 
He said to them, when you pray, say, Father. His next choice line is this, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Now, that's a word. When was the last time you used the word hallowed? Hey, guys, don't eat my cookies. They're hallowed. Hey, that tub of ice cream in there, hallowed, right? What does hallowed mean? How often do we use that? It's a language that needs updated. It's the verb form of holy. Okay, the Greek for holy is hagias, and the verb here is hagiaso. It's the verb of holy. So you could say, holy to be your name. May your name be holy. Well, what does holy mean? Holy means sanctified, set apart. We think sanctified, usually we just think about sin and righteousness, and rightly so. But really, in a broader sense, sanctified just means this is set over here for a particular purpose, right? And in this sense, the uh, declaration that God's name is holy is to say, God, may we keep your name sacred. The name of God is important. It's very important. That's why taking God's name in vain was a very big deal and is still a very big deal to God's law. Now, you might be asking if you're a critical thinker, why is Jesus telling you guys to pray that God's name would be holy if God is perfectly holy already? Can God be less holy? Well, the answer to that is in understanding the complexity of what the name of God is. The name of God is the expression of God's reality. It is the interface between who God is and how we understand him. So when we pray your name be holy, we're praying, listen, we're praying that we would see your name as consistent with your nature. So if I lie about God and who he is, I'm taking his name in vain because I'm perverting the reality of who he is. So to live and to speak and to act in such a way that is consistent with the reality of God's nature is to be, to be hallowing his name. So in this, Jesus is saying, you need to ask that you and remind yourself to hallow God's name. This is partly because we have a tendency to take God's name in vain, don't we? And I don't just mean when you stub your toe. I mean when your life is out of whack with the reality of God's love and grace and goodness and righteousness. It's funny, you know, Israel, they were deadly serious about the name Yahweh. They, they even hid the letters so nobody would know how to pronounce it correctly, right? We just have Y-H-W-H. And they were so worried about taking God's name in vain. Yet, simultaneously, they had idols in the temple of God, pagan idols for hundreds of years, burning their kids to Molech into these Baal-worshipping uh, idols. Which one do you think was really taking God's name in vain? Was it the idolatry and the hundreds of years of sin and really prostitution of Israel to God? Or was it keeping his name sacred? The prayer here is that we would hallow God's name. And part of the way we do that is through living in such a way that displays the reality of his own nature. But this is not necessarily, or I should say, this is not primarily a petition for us to hallow his name. It's actually more of a declaration. It's a declaration that God is holy and that his name is holy. It's a reminder for us that are praying that not only is he Abba, he is also holy. Holy meaning he is other than. He is set apart. He's in a category of his own. There is no one like him. There's nothing that we can compare him to. 
He's high and above all things. We need to remind ourselves of who God is before we move into prayer. This is a conviction that, that I often come back to, and every time I deploy it in my life, I'm amazed. When I, before I pray, now obviously there's those Lord save me prayers, right? The one Jesus prayed as he was sinking. And I get that. You're on the freeway. Someone's getting in your lane. Lord, help. Okay, I'm not saying stop and say, Father, hallowed be thy name. Please let this semi-truck not push me off the road. Okay, I'm not saying that. But typically, when you're in your time of prayer, starting in this pattern and saying, first of all, acknowledging the love of God, but then immediately also acknowledging the holiness of God, the sovereignty of God, the power of God, the omniscience of God, the omnipotence of God, that he is totally in control, changes and reorients what you end up praying in such a way that is radical. So Jesus stitches this into the prayer so that we would have an Isaiah 6 moment every time we pray. You know what the Isaiah 6 moment is? It's the moment where Isaiah, the prophet, gets carried up to the heavens and he beholds holy, holy, holy God on the throne. And what happens? He falls down on his face. But the story doesn't end there. The point isn't that we would be in terror God sends, he, he stands up and says, or well, I don't know if he stands up, he says, I am undone. I'm a sinful man. I'm a broken man. He sees his own need, and then God sends someone to bring a coal um, and, and touch his lips with the coal, meaning he was purified. He was atoned for, and then God says, we need someone to go. He says, send me. That whole Isaiah 6 moment, Jesus is inviting us into that kind of a prayer life, the kind of prayer life that says, God, you are holy, and I will do whatever you want me to do. Because I'm acknowledging with worship your superiority to all things. See, a lot of our prayer, especially in the West, is very self-centered. And God knows our frame. God knows our fallenness. God knows our selfishness. But we often go into prayer immediately, bypassing the Father part, bypassing the worship part, and going right to the petition. The problem when we do that is we lose all sense of clarity. We need to stop for a moment and consider the holiness of God. The sovereignty of God. Tim Keller says, prayer is like walk, waking up from a nightmare to reality. We laugh at what we look, took so seriously inside the dream. We realize that all is truly well. Of, por- of course, prayer can have the opposite effect. It can puncture illusions and show us uh, we are in more spiritual danger than we thought. You ever have that? You wake up from a dream and you go, man, why was I so stressed about that in the dream? Prayer does that. It pulls us out of that delusion that, that we thought this was such a big deal. But, but prayer does that when we bring the size of God into our scope. It puts everything in proportion. I hardly ever get stressed when I'm looking at a beautiful starry night or the, the massive ocean. Why? Because it puts things in proportion. It makes me realize how small my problems really are in comparison to this reality. Prayer needs to bring us into a place of worship where we say, God, you're so much bigger than these little things that I seem to think are so important. Now, I'm still going to bring them to you. And we'll see that in our in our text. So we have the intimacy of his fatherhood. We have the sanctity of his name. Now, number three, we have the insurgency of his reign. The insurgency of his reign. He says, Father, hallowed be your name. Here comes the third line. Your kingdom come. Again, like the first, or like the hallowed be your name part, this is both a request and a statement. 
Jesus is reminding them to remind themselves in prayer that the kingdom of God is at hand, that it's breaking in. And he's telling them to petition that God's kingdom would come through their life. What does it mean for God's kingdom to come? What does it mean to pray your kingdom come? Jesus is using this kind of language to shift prayer, listen, from a religious nicety to a battle cry of insurgency. You know what kingdom's coming looks like? It doesn't necessarily look like hugs and rainbows. This is wartime language. The kingdom of God is insurging, it's, it's, it's ensuing, it's, it's moving itself into this world. Now let me explain something just from a, a, a biblical theological standpoint here. This world, if you haven't noticed, is currently under the hands of another administration. Did you notice that? I don't mean the Biden administration, for those that are into politics. I, I don't mean that. I mean the entire world is in, under the power of the prince of the power of the air, a different administration. The gospel is that the kingdom of God, where God is fully reigning, where God is fully ruling, where his will is being done perfectly, that the kingdom of God is breaking in to this kingdom that is right now ruled by a, an inferior power. Satan and his demons. The euangelion, the good news is that there is a new administration coming. And right now it's coming through the gospel proclamation and the building of the church. But at one point it's coming full on military. Jesus is coming back to once for all take out the powers that are currently ruling in this world. That's kingdom come. C.S. Lewis pictured this the best, I think, in Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The kids come through the, the wardrobe into this world, this dimension, in which it's snow, there's snow, and there's this temporary witch who's sitting on a false throne. But yet the good news is that Aslan, the true king, is coming. And not only is he coming, he's beginning to come already. And the snow is beginning to melt. And the witch's power is beginning to fade because the kingdom of, the true kingdom of Narnia, the true kingdom of Aslan is breaking in. Why do you think, where do you think C.S. Lewis got that idea? Straight from the Bible. Straight from the Bible. We are in this place called the already not yet where the kingdom is both coming and it's here. It's here in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's coming because he's coming back. So when we pray, your kingdom come, this is wartime analogy, or this is wartime language that says, God, bring your kingdom now and bring it tomorrow. We want the king on the throne in this world. That's what we want. I was thinking about kingdom. You ever drive by a building and you see graffiti on it? And it's like a gang sign or something like that. And this is sort of, this is a gang saying, this is our turf, Right? Whose turf is that really, though? Does it belong to the gang? No, it belongs to the person that owns the title deed, and the entire might of our uh, government system will back that. That place belongs to the person with the title deed. Satan has spray-painted. He's really, with graffiti, he's tagged this world, called it his own. Sin and death. Jesus is the rightful owner coming in to take back what is his. When we pray that, we say, come, take back what is yours. In World War II, France was quickly taken over by Germany, but there was a resistance, right? The resistance was fighting through guerrilla warfare to help the allies that were advancing from the beaches to take back the country and give it back to who it rightfully belonged to. 
the insurgency of the kingdom of God. That's the Christian life. Now, it's not through military might. It's not through hostile takeover. It's through the spreading of the good news of the gospel. We are part of the kingdom of God breaking into this world. John Piper says, It is not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom used to call upstairs for more comforts in the den. We cannot know what prayer is for until we know what, that life is war. Prayer is not simply us saying, God, would you give me this nice thing? We are in wartime. We are in a wartime, the clash of two kingdoms, and the true kingdom is breaking in. When we pray, we, when we pray and Piper goes on to make the point, when we pray, we are like a walkie-talkie calling in our strikes. God, bring your kingdom. Break out these strongholds. Free these people. Jesus is stitching that into the prayer because he wants them to be aware of this. Christian prayer is active rebellion against the administration of this age. And it is a confession of allegiance to the one who breaks in. We say, your kingdom come. It reminds us of what's truly happening. And by the way, you cannot pray, your kingdom come. Well, you can, hypocritically. You cannot pray, your kingdom come, if you're actually living for this kingdom of this world to simply stay. It's Jesus has stitched into this prayer in such a way that we are forced to live open-handed. We need to be reminded of that every day. Keller notes, the kingdom come, or thy kingdom come is a lordship petition. It is asking God to extend his royal power over every part of our lives, emotions, desires, thoughts, and commitments. Now, I want you to notice in the flow of this prayer that all three of the first things we've noticed have nothing to do with getting anything from God. They're simply realigning the reality of what is. I need to remember his fatherhood, his love. I need to remember, oh, what is it? I forgot. I, I need to remember uh, his, the, the sanctity, the holiness of his name. I need to remember that his kingdom is breaking in. All of those things. I need to be reminded of those realities. And if you start your prayer there, it's amazing how your petitions begin to change. It's not that we don't ask God for things, but we are now aligned with what God truly cares about. His name, his glory, his kingdom, those are his primary focuses. Now, let's move into the next line. Number four, if you want to write it down, the dependency on his provision. I know that's bad grammar, but it has to match. The dependency on his provision. Look at verse three. Give us each day our daily bread. Now, this is a simple and clear petition to the Lord for basic provision. This is every need, not every greed. This is not according to our own Western standards of how we think we ought to live. Everybody I meet in America thinks they're poor. Everybody. Because the standard that we have is based on someone that's more wealthy than us, right? This is not Jesus saying, hey, pray that you would be wealthy, although God does bless people with wealth sometimes. This is not poverty theology that, that says, uh, God, don't give me anything because I don't, I don't want to be rich and that's less spiritual. No. This is really Proverbs 30, verse 7, which says, uh, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that I need, or I shall be full, or uh, so I shall be full. Oh, man, I'm blowing it. Let me start over. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that I need, or I shall be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? 
or I shall be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So here Solomon is saying, Lord, just give me what is right for me. This prayer teaches us to ask God for what is right for us. Provision. We live in a world of refrigerators and food that lasts a really long time, but in ancient times, you had to go get your food daily. It's not to say you didn't have any stores, but mostly you're living hand to mouth. You're living paycheck to paycheck. So the prayer here is to come to your father and say, Father, give us our daily bread. Okay? Do you acknowledge God as your provider every day? Jesus has created a prayer in which we must acknowledge God as our provider every day. That's an important part of prayer. So, number five, the receptivity of his forgiveness. The receptivity of his forgiveness. Look at verse four. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. So here Jesus is teaching the disciples in their prayer to make sure and bring to the Lord our need for forgiveness. Not only do we need bread, we need forgiveness. In fact, as humans, this is our greatest need. And for the believer, this is not constantly having to come back and be justified again. The believer is just justified, meaning you're completely paid. But this does mean we need to come back to the Lord and continue to believe the gospel. And there's so much freedom in this expression of God admitting my sin, admitting my need to the Lord and receiving the gospel every day. It's something we should confess daily to the Lord. Lord, this is the area that I've missed the mark and receiving the forgiveness that he has. But there's something I want you to notice in this line. St. Augustine called it the terrible petition. Do you see it? Forgive us our sins and help us forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Is that what it says? What does it say? Forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Augustine called it the terrible petition because you can't pray it unless you mean it. He doesn't say, forgive me my debts and help me forgive others. He says, forgive me my debts because I have forgiven others. Isn't that crazy? It's, it's a, Jesus built into it a statement, a presupposition, an assumption that you yourself have taken it upon yourself to forgive those who have debts against you. Why would Jesus do that? What was his purpose in that? I remember hearing some uh, gal, I think it was at the Global Leadership Summit uh, on the stage. She, she was from um, Kenya, I believe it was, or, or one, maybe, I can't remember, one country in Africa. And she, when she was a child, had gone through ethnic cleansing. And uh, some, some men came in and, and had um, taken the life of her, her parents right before her eyes. It was this really crazy thing. And she um, obviously was deeply marred by it. And some years later, she ended up uh, interacting with some missionaries. She became a Christian. And went to Christian school. And in Christian school, every day they would recite the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Kingdom come, thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. As she could not pray that line. She said, I couldn't pray that line for years. Because she knew she had not forgiven those who had taken the life of her parents. And these were men that she knew. She knew where they were. She knew where they lived. She knew exactly all about them. So for years, she didn't pray that until finally the gospel broke into her life in such a radical way that she was able to not only forgive them in her heart, she was able to forgive them to their face. 
Do you see why that is stitched into this prayer? It's stitched into this prayer as a mechanism for us to examine our own, how, to what level have we truly believe, believed grace for ourselves? You cannot forgive someone until you have received the grace of God for yourself. Lewis, he says, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Spurgeon said, unless you have forgiven others, you read your own death warrant when you read the Lord's Prayer. And we know this to be true. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 14, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Matthew 6, 14, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. The Apostle John in 1 John 4.20 says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. How can we, what, what do we do with such harsh, rigid lines to say that if we haven't forgiven others, then we haven't been forgiven? Because when you believe the gospel, the natural repercussion of that is that you extend grace to others. I can always tell how much I'm believing the gospel by how kind and gracious I am to people when they sin against me. I can always tell how little I'm believing the gospel by how quick I am to look for retributive justice. How quick I am to hold on to grudges. How quick I am to put other people down. When I see my own wretchedness and my own need for God's grace and how much he's done to cover me and pay for my sin and give me his righteousness, I have nothing but empathy and kindness for those, even those that would tarnish my name or try to harm me. Jesus built grace into the prayer in such a way that we, every day, should self-check our own level of believing the gospel. Can I pray this prayer? Have I forgiven? You know, we begin to see here why this prayer has the power to transform us, doesn't it? It forces us to remember the love of God. It forces us to remember the holiness of God. It forces us to remember the agenda of God, that his kingdom would break in. And it forces us to remember the mercy of God so that we might extend that mercy to others. This prayer is doing more than just changing things. It's doing this amazing work of changing us. When we pray this, we will be changed by it. Look at number six. Finally, the agency of his protection, if you want to write that down. The agency of his protection. The last line here is, lead us not into temptation. I won't belabor this one. We know that God does not tempt us. Jim, James tells us that. James tells us that we are tempted when we're drawn away by our own lusts, which conceives and gives birth to sin. So this is not saying, God, don't tempt me. This is saying, God, graciously lead me in a place where I don't have to be as tempted. And as a good shepherd, Obviously, God has to lead his sheep through troubled waters, but it should be the desire of our heart and the petition of our prayer. God, don't put me in a place where I'm so tempted that I might sin against you. Do you see how the holiness of God is still in view here? The holiness and the glory of God, the kingdom of God is still central. This prayer centers around God. Just give me what I need so I can build your kingdom for your glory, for your name. And Lord, don't let me sin against you. Don't let me take your name in vain. This whole prayer orbits around the center, orbits around the glory of God, not the pleasure of self. 
This prayer needs to be examined by Western eyes because in the West, we think God exists for us to have more stuff and better jobs and better raises. It's not the point of the prayer. The point of the prayer is that God's glory is central in all things. And you will be miserable if you live in any other way. There are billions of miserable people in this world. The reason they're miserable is because they have exchanged the glory of God for created things. This prayer reminds us of the center of the universe, God's existence. We need to pray like this. Now, again, we don't have to pray exactly like this. But I want to encourage you tomorrow when you get up or tonight when you go to bed or on the drive home when you have to apologize to your spouse because you got in a fight on the drive here or whatever it is. Um, not that that ever happens to any of you guys, I'm sure. And you, and you sort of pray. I just want you to follow this pattern. Remind yourself of the love of God. Remind yourself of the holiness of God. Pray prayers like this. Father, I know that you love me and that you've adopted me. Pray the gospel over yourself. I know that I'm forgiven. Lord, you are higher. You are greater. You are sovereign above all things. And I pray, Lord, that, that your kingdom would be seen in this thing that we're praying over right now. That I pray that your kingdom would come over our kids. If we're just praying for our kids or this, this job that I'm asking you for, Lord. I, I'm asking you for the job, but Lord, more importantly, your kingdom come. Do whatever's going to bring your kingdom. Do whatever's going to make your name hallowed. Lord, give me, give me what I need here. Lord, whatever that is. Don't know how I'm going to pay the bills. Don't know how I'm going to reconcile this. I'm stressed about this. Lord, help me with this. Whatever happens. Your kingdom come. Lord, help me not to sin against you in this way. You see how God-centered that prayer is? It's not man-centered. It's a God-centered prayer. Jesus lived a God-centered life. He modeled for us what it looks like to be all about the superior glory of his Father. Now, the, the text doesn't end there. Let's quickly look at the end. Not only are we going to see the kind of prayers we should pray, we need to see the kind of person we're going to pray to. Jesus doesn't just stop with this mechanical pattern. He wants us to understand something vividly through a parable about the nature of the one to whom we pray to. Look at verse 5. He said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. Now, you need to understand something here about first century Middle Eastern hospitality. Somebody shows up at your door, a friend, and you don't have bread. You figure it out. It would be more shameful to not feed them than it would be to go knock on your neighbor's door in the middle of the night. So this is a, a scene that's very imaginable for this audience that's hearing this. They can imagine this, and perhaps maybe, they, perhaps maybe they've even had this happen. You can't run down to the grocery store, right? 7-Eleven's not open. You know, what are you going to do? Walmart's closed. It's like trying to find food on Christmas Day. You ever done that? It's terrible. You're driving around everywhere. There's nothing's open, okay? So, so knock, knock, knock on the neighbor's door. Hey, can you loan me some bread? Now, verse 7, he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Again, a little bit of cultural context here. Okay, these people live in small houses. It's the Middle East, so there's not a need to have a, a, a super easy to close and shut door because it's warm all the time. 
So when you close the door for the night, it's kind of a big deal. You shut the door, and because these are such small homes, and because, uh, you know, they just, not everybody had their own bedroom, everybody sort of sleeps together. Everyone's bedded down. Your kids, you know, if you guys know what it's like when your kids finally go to sleep, do not wake them up. <laughs> Last thing I want is my kids waking up, right? I want to sleep. The kids are put to bed. The door is shut. Knock, knock, knock. Here's the neighbor. Hey, I need some bread. Go away. Now, Jesus says, verse 8, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. In other words, their friendship is not going to do the deal. <laughs> the level to which they have relational equity, it's not going to carry it. doesn't matter that they're friends. We can be friends tomorrow. I'm not, you're not friend enough for me to get up. Yet, because of his impudence or persistence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. So the neighbor eventually realizes that the incessant annoyance of the knocking is worse than getting out of bed. Okay. Sitting here listening to you knock over and over and over is more annoying than just throwing the covers off and getting into the cupboard and grabbing his friend. Here you go. Now the whole family's awake. Thanks for nothing. So Jesus brings up this parable. Now, if you just stopped here, you would assume that the point of the parable is that God is a grumpy neighbor <laughs> who's annoyed by you. And you just need to really be persistent. You just got to pray over and over until God is just so sick of you praying. And then maybe he'll go, fine, have it your way. Set apart my sovereignty for a minute. Do what you want so you'll leave me alone. Can't get any peace in heaven. Knock, knock, knock all the time. That's what you would think. And, and, if, and if that was the case, we wouldn't be doing church right now. We would be beating our head up against the wall, praying the same thing over and over again, hoping that maybe we could win God's favor. But that's not the point of the parable. Jesus brings it together here in verse 9. He says, I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Jesus is saying, look at the contrast. You don't have to bang down the door. You don't have to bug me. You don't have to incessantly hassle me. Now, it's not to say we shouldn't pray for things multiple times. I think we should. But the point of this is not repetition. The point of this, listen, is the goodness of the one by wh to whom we come to. The love and the care. We come to his door and he opens. God loves to hear our prayers. He loves for us to come to his door. We're given another contrast in verse 11. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, which happens all the time, right? Not. Um, fish sticks, maybe. Will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. Now, if you read any commentaries on this, you're going to learn that these things look similar. The scorpions in that time would, would sometimes curl up in this little ball. It would look like an egg and a fish and a snake. I guess there's a similarity there. So the picture is, hey, you know, you're a two-year-old tugging on your sleeve. Hey, I'm hungry. Yeah, here's a scorpion, right? Not going to happen. Not going to happen. Verse 13, if you then, who are evil, notice who he's talking to here. <laughs> 
okay? He's talking about the basic fallen condition of human beings. If you, who are basically fallen human beings, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Again, there's the contrast. I mean, I don't know what the the modern equivalent of this parable would be. Like if El Chapo gives his kids a quinceanera or whatever, if El Chapo, you know who El Chapo is? Anybody? Yeah, he's like a mobster, like the worst gangbanger in the world, pretty much. I, I think, I heard he loves his kids, actually. I heard he's actually a good dad. And he, like, is really a bad guy. Okay, so if even El Chapo knows how to take care of his kids, how much more your heavenly father will he actually hear your petitions and care? The, the point of this is all about the goodness of God, the one to whom we pray to. And listen, sometimes we come to the father and we think we're asking for a fish, but we're actually asking for a serpent. And what does a father do? What does a mother do in that moment? They don't give them. They don't give them what they think they want. Just because you ask for something, it is God's goodness to sometimes say no. Tim Keller says, God gives us what we ask for, or he gives us what we would have asked for if we knew everything he knew. He's good enough to say no. And we don't win God over with our repetition. We don't win God over with our earnestness and my faith. Come on. Just come to him. He's good. He loves you. Pray in his name. Knock on his door. Ask him. That's all you have to do. Now, there is a point here to be made, I believe, from the text about persistence. It's our good pleasure to come back to the Father and ask him. Some of you guys have been asking the Lord for things in here for decades. Keep asking him. He never gets tired of it. He never grows weary of that. It's his good pleasure to hear our requests. So let me just wrap this up. Three reasons you should pray the way Jesus taught. Three reasons you should pray the way Jesus taught. First, this kind of prayer opens doors. This kind of prayer opens doors. How do I know it opens doors? Because when you ask Jesus for that which Jesus has said he wants to do, the answer is yes. Remember? Anyone asks anything in my name, the answer is yes. Asking, in, asking what is consistent with the name and the nature of God. God, can I have a Maserati? Maybe. God, can I make your name known? Can I see your kingdom come in my life? Yes. Yes. You want to see doors open? Pray the prayers that are consistent with that which God has expressed he's all about. Tune in to his thing. Do what he's doing. Pray for what he taught us to pray for. The key in this parable is coming to the right door. If the door's not opening, okay, you might be at the wrong door. You might be asking for the wrong thing. How do we do that? Well, we get to know the person to whom we're praying to through his word. Number two, the, thir- the, the second reason you should pray the way Jesus taught, this kind of prayer makes sure, okay? Th- this kind of prayer opens doors. Secondly, this kind of prayer makes sure. Makes sure of what? It makes sure that you have to pray it every day. You see the way Jesus designed this? Give us this day our daily bread. There's a dailiness. There's a consistency. Jesus didn't give him prayer to pray once a year. He didn't give him a pray- prayer to pray at festivals, 
or feasts. He gave them a prayer to pray every day because we need to be in prayer constantly. Thirdly, this kind of prayer transforms. This kind of prayer transforms. The pattern here is the key that I want you to see. Prayers that put God's glory, put the superiority of God at the center of all things. Shape your prayers in this way, and I guarantee you, your life will begin to take that same shape. The glory and the the superiority of God will become the centerpiece of your life. So what what makes Christian prayer different? Jesus. We pray to Jesus. We pray that Jesus' will would be done. It's all about Jesus. It's an entirely different thing. This is the shape of Christian prayer. And I just want to encourage you guys. We're going to wrap up. We were going to do circles, but I used it all the time. I want to encourage you guys to just consider this prayer as you pray this week. Just spend, but before you, you start asking God for stuff, and it's good to ask God for stuff, do it. But before you start asking God for stuff, just start by worshiping. Start by admitting his program, remembering what he's doing. Start by remembering the love of God. And remember this, Jesus gave up his place with the Father so that you could be part of that. He was forsaken so that you could be adopted. And you've heard me say this before, but there is this massive thing that happens when Jesus, after the cross, he resurrects, he comes to Mary, and he says, go and tell my brothers that our Father If you're in Christ, you have this access to the Father and his love. Amen? Let's all stand. God, Father, Lord, we thank you that you are who you are. We thank you that it's all about you. It's not about us. We thank you that our existence is an extension of your existence. That, God, you are the creator. We are not. Thank you that you are holy, God. There's no one like you. Lord, your name is great. Can we make your name famous? Can we live not for our own little kingdoms, our own little influence? Can we live not for the name of this church or the name of the business that we work at or run or, or, the, or the family name that we bear or anything like that, Lord? May we live exclusively for your kingdom, for its name, the name of Jesus. God, we pray that you would give us what we need this week, just what we need. Lord, you're such a good provider. You always take care of us. And this week, God, we just pray that you would give us what we need so that we might continue to worship you and live for you. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to forgive those those that, that Lord, have, have carried some debt with us. Lord, I pray that you would forgive our sins and that we would believe that to the level that which we would extend that to others. And Father, would you lead us this week, guide us away from temptation, steer our path, take us to still waters. Father, we need you so desperately. 
I'm so glad that you saved us. Thank you, Father, for loving us. Thank you that you are our Abba this morning. I pray that we would talk to you this week, each and every one of us. May we talk to you because, Jesus, you spent your blood to give us that kind of relationship. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.